This episode of Pet Resource Radio is sponsored by Tito's Handmade Vodka. Tito's Vodka for Dog People program seeks to rescue and protect animals all over the country by supporting and working with local animal wellness organizations nationwide, including us, Kansas City's very own Pet Resource Center. After all, they're vodka for dog people. Does that mean it can only be enjoyed by dogs who walk on two legs, can speak language, maybe live in the bowels of the earth? No, of course not, because those don't exist. It's vodka for people who love dogs, like us and you. Pet Resource Radio is also brought to you by our friends at One Kansas City Radio. Listen at 100.1 in the KC area or listen online at onekcradio.org. Today we're talking with Dr. Michael Delgado about when, where, and how to feed your cat. Today on Pet Resource Radio. From the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, I'm Dave Shapiro. And I'm Sierra Howe. Welcome to the show. We're coming to you from our headquarters here at 59th and Troost in KC Mo, And we're a nonprofit whose goal is to keep pets and people together through supportive services. Yep, yep. Um, hey, my friend, how are you? I'm okay. I watched the new Ghostbusters movie last night. Mm-hmm. I thought it was hot garbage. <laughs> like, just hot garbage. I mean, it's like somebody trying to shove nostalgia down my throat for two hours. It was. It was the original is always better right, that's how i agree it's like my least favorite out of the four even number two where they have the statue of liberty walking through <laughs> new york um anyway so here in a bit we'll be talking with dr michael delgado about feeding cats but first a little pet news First up, if you've ever had more than one dog at home, you've maybe experienced this firsthand, but a survey of dog owners in Italy reported that 86% of them witnessed, after the death of a dog, negative changes in behavior in the surviving dog. They sought more attention, ate less, and played less for several months. The researchers discovered that dogs that had formed a close attachment with the other dog were more likely to suffer grief. However, Dr. Federica Perone, the author of the paper, said that this isn't some holdover from them being pack animals. Quote, domestic dogs are best described as social animals who may develop strong affiliations with members of their group, she said. I believe that the grieving behavior of dogs is more likely related to their ability to form an emotional bond. Quote, there are many things an owner can do to alleviate the companion dog's distress in this situation, Perone said, such as maintaining the daily routines the dog is used to, which is known to reassure dogs considerably. Moreover, she says, it is advisable that owners stay close to their dog, share activities with them, and make them feel protected. Way to make me sad with this pet news choice. Sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, because it's something we have to talk about. But I have two shepherds at home. They're like a year and a half apart. So it's like, oh, it's going to be so hard. It's rough. I mean, it's rough when any, you know, I mean, I don't have dogs. But uh, when I lived in Chicago, when Beth and I lived in Chicago, you know, we had to put down uh, her cat Mario. And her Mario and, and Otto were bonded. And Otto Both just- cats. Yeah, both cats. Okay. They just went around, Otto just went around the apartment oh, I hate that. for days looking. Mm. And so. it's the same for people if something were to happen to their owner. Yeah. I mean, there was one story where, did we talk about it on here? Maybe. There was the dog who sat at the ocean side because his owner was we didn't, a fisherman. We didn't use it because it's too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> More depressing than this one. So, yeah. no, but yeah. 
and you always see, like, I don't know, I feel like people are on the fence about bringing the other pet with them if you were to have to humanely euthanize. Right. So. Um, Yeah, that is one of the things that's good about home euthanasia is that the other pets are there and they they do recognize Mm -hmm. what's going on. Versus wondering when their friend's going to come back. Right. But we have a happy story to follow up with. Dogs are known for their intelligence, but to take the bus home after getting separated from their owner at the park, Pepper is taking it to a whole new level. The two-year-old Border Collie was out on a walk with her owner's mother, Julie, when they came across a flock of geese. And Pepper, being the natural herding dog she is, bolted after them, which made Julie lose grip of the lead. Unfortunately, Julie quickly lost sight of her, so Charlotte, Pepper's owner, immediately did what any owner should do in that situation, which is post about the lost pet online and gather a search party to scout the neighborhood, but nothing. As it turns out, there was no need to worry because Pepper trekked three miles from the park to the bus stop that she frequented with her owners, hopped right on the bus... And thanks to someone who recognized her and texted Charlotte, was allowed to ride for free so that she could get off at the right stop and wait for her mom to come pick her up. Quote, she knew when to get up when the bell rang. We've done that bus ride for so long. The doors open and she jumped off. Charlotte told the Daily Mail. Now, they're so smart. They are. (laughs) And it's like you would see this headline and you would think, no, there's no way that's going to be true. And then you open it up, you read it, you see the dog and you, you read the quotes and you're like, wow. Yeah. Pretty impressive. Super impressive. So I'm glad she made it home, but I would be panicking oh, regardless. Sure. Yes. It's like worst nightmare ever. My dogs have gotten out once at our not so new house anymore, but I was barefoot in 30 degree weather in the rain running down the street and I had to run inside and scream, Jonathan, wake up. <laughs> the dogs are outside. One of them could tell by the tone of my voice to turn around and go back home. The uh-huh. other one just kept going because Ooh. they were um, going after a stray dog. So uh-huh. not going after like viciously. But no, but curious. they're like, oh, hey, what's up? Who are you? Hey, so. What's up, buddy? Oh, microchip your pets. Yeah, microchip we'll your pets. We'll always say this when please, we share please, a story please. like this. So if you're if you don't have a border collie that knows to get on the bus, then you can be reunited with your pet. <laughs> exactly. And okay. we can help you with that here. So Yeah. Well, all right, we've got part one of a two part interview with Dr. Michael Delgado this week, and it's still a big half an interview. So let's get to it. Dr. Michael Delgado is a certified applied animal behaviorist, a certified cat behavior consultant, and an affiliate member of the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. She offers cat behavior consulting through her business, Feline Minds, and is the resident cat behavior expert for Rover and Smalls. She co-authored the book Total Cat Mojo with Jackson Galaxy and has her own book, Play With Your Cat, forthcoming next year. I also understand she's a fantastic bassist. Dr. Michael Delgado, welcome to Pet Resource Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, let's learn a little bit about you. Have you always been interested in cats? Yeah, I'm. well, okay, yes. I've definitely always been pretty obsessed with cats, even from when I was a small child, although um, I was not really able to have cats until I was a teenager and finally, like, convinced my mom that her allergies were not that bad. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) but I was definitely, you know, my best friend in school had, like, five cats, so I loved going to her house. I mean, I always thought cats were really cool. Um, But I definitely didn't see myself working with cats as a career. I wasn't one of those people that 
you know, knew they wanted to be a veterinarian when they were five or anything like that. I just right. thought cats were really fascinating and beautiful and wanted to be around them. Um, so you were a touring musician. Now, was the pull of academic research too much or was it just time to shift priorities? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I really, you know, the I, mo- I dropped out of college because I wanted to move to California and start a band. So, right. you know, that was many years ago. Um, so I moved to the Bay Area and did start a band. That was like really my my vision was I wanted to play music. I was not a musician. I was not trained in any way. I was um, active in the punk rock scene. And, you know, luckily to play punk rock music, you don't have to be like a great musician. So I really just um, found some friends and we were like, let's start a band. And that kind of, you know, started, a, I guess, a 10, 15 year relationship with with being a musician and, and playing right. live shows and writing music, recording music. Um, I did decide, um, you know, after a series of kind of life events, I started working in animal shelter, which was really how I got involved in behavior. And that started to kind of take over my life. And at some point while I was working at the shelter, I did realize like, oh, I want to learn more formally about behavior and I want to possibly do research. So I went back to college, finished my undergrad. And yeah, at that point, um, you know, it it was uh, more difficult to maintain, you know, band practice, playing gigs, we're out until two in the morning, traveling, all those things. So I did kind of have to make a choice. Um, And so I did stop playing music at that time. And I mean, I still like to pick up a guitar or bass or, you know, I've been kind of in a very um, half-baked manner trying to teach myself how to play the drums over the last, you know, pandemic times, um, just because I've always wanted to learn how to play drums. But um, so, yeah, music is still a huge part of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a huge music fan. When I was in grad school, I DJed at the college radio station. Um, I, I listen to music all the time. I like to see live music. Um, so, so yeah, music is, is definitely a huge part of my identity and I do miss the band days. There were some really cool things about it. I got to travel across the country several times. I worked for some other bands as like kind of a tour manager slash roadie. So Mm -hmm. I got to go to Japan and Canada and yeah, like see the country in a different way, um, in a very kind of gritty way, like, you know, small clubs playing in people's backyards or in their living rooms, like wherever they would let us play. So it was, it was a great experience. That's a great trajectory. I think I, that's certainly one I wish I had had. That sounds fantastic to me. Um, I have no regrets. (laughs) So you do cat behavior consulting through your company, Feline Minds. When you consult with someone about feeding cats, what do you like to focus on? What, what common issues do you see? Yeah, so um been doing cat behavior consulting for about 20 years now and um, founded Feline Minds with my business partner in 2008. So that was really, really when we started doing home visits. And, uh, you know, probably the most common things we see are litter box avoidance and conflict between cats in the home. Right. But there are a lot of times where feeding issues do come up. And um, a lot of times it's like one cat's trying to eat the other cat's food, one cat's on a special diet. Um or, you know, certainly obesity or overweight in cats is another issue that can come up. And sometimes the feeding issues are really more about trying to um, educate people about how cats naturally eat and how they can make changes in their house that will reduce their cat's stress, perhaps provide enrichment for their cats and um, how those things focus around food. Because, you know, food is very important. Um, we need food to survive. Our cats tend to love food. Um 
And so there, you know, it, it is a central kind of feature of our relationship with cats because we feed them and there's a lot of behaviors around feeding, including, you know, annoying behaviors like cats that wake their owner up at three uh-huh. in the morning yep. wanting food. That's very common, actually. Um, and cats are very good at training people to wake up at three in the morning and mm-hmm. give them food, which is not great um, for anybody's sleep. So, so yeah, those are, those are certainly um, issues that come up a lot and it can cause more conflict than you would think. Um, definitely a lot of people who have to kind of hover over their cats while they eat and make sure that Fluffy doesn't eat Felix's food and that sort of thing. So cats are incredibly routine oriented, which, hey, I identify with. Uh, <laughs> Tanar, the one-eyed wonder, will get up on the living room table and just stare when she knows it's time. And I'm mm-hmm. almost thankful that she only has one eye in those moments. because I don't know how <laughs> intense that stare would be if there were two. <laughs> Um, so question is this, uh, is it best to feed them at regular times and and what about free feeding? Yeah, it's a great question. How should we feed our cats and when should we feed our cats? And I will say there's really no one size fits all answer. Like sometimes people really want, like, this is the way, the right way to do things and it's going to be perfect for me. It's going to be perfect for my cat and all our problems will fade away. And I really, when I'm working with a client, try to approach it from a very, you know, personalized perspective. Like what is the human's routine? What is the nature of the problem they're having with their cat? And then what's what are the cat's preferences? Because the tricky thing is that cats are naturally grazers. They have very small stomachs. Um, their stomach is about the size of a ping pong ball. And if you think about their natural hunting behavior, they don't eat like one giant animal a day, right? When they hunt and are responsible for finding their own food, they tend to hunt very small animals like mice that don't have a lot of calories. So they need to hunt, you know, eight to 12 mice a day to survive. Right. And when you look at the research of cats feeding behavior, when they're allowed to kind of regulate and make their own choices about feeding, they do tend to eat eight to 15 times a day on average. Of course, you're going to have some cats that eat much fewer times a day and cats who might eat more. But what you'll see is a clear um, tendency towards several small meals a day. Gotcha. So I, ideally, we can replicate that or give cats the opportunity to have that routine as much as possible because that is what most cats prefer. Now, it's more convenient for us to, let's say, feed them twice a day, three times a day. Right. And then you'll see cats who maybe are like kind of trained to gorge and um, maybe eat more than their stomach would naturally accommodate. Mm-hmm. And you can increase stress overfeeding, for example, by feeding cats um, in close proximity with other cats. So now they're not only like forced to eat a large amount of food in a small amount of time, but they better eat it all or else their friend is going to finish their meal for them. So, you know, I, I do try to encourage people to, if they're going to do um, scheduled feeding to try to do at least, you know, three, four, five meals a day. Um, And then, you know, you asked about free feeding. So the main issue with free feeding is, you know, are you measuring out how much food is available to your cat each day? Or is it like a giant bowl of food that's just constantly being refilled where you have no idea how much your cat is eating? Right. Um, And, you know, cats will, for various reasons, overeat. It can be from boredom, stress, just the hedonic qualities of food, like this tastes good and it's here, I'm going to eat it. Um, And so I don't encourage like just a buffet uh, that's a, a freely available food or like the gravity feeders where the cat can just eat as much as they want. Right. But for some cats, it may work best for them that you offer them a certain amount of food and then they can choose to come back to it 
later. And that works best if you have like one cat or if you use um, like microchip activated feeders that restrict who can access the food. So yeah. the sure, um, the sure feed is a wonderful product that um, only opens for the cat with the pre-programmed microchip. So it does allow, if you have one cat who's a bit of a grazer and you have another cat who's what I call a vacuum cleaner and will just eat everything in sight. Well, you can give the grazer the sure feed and they can come back and finish their meal whenever they feel like it. So right. if they want to eat all the food you offer at once, they can, but if they want to eat a very small amount, come back, um, then they can do that. And so the important part here is really working with your veterinarian to know how much your cat should be eating a day, how many calories do they need to maintain a healthy weight mm -hmm. and measuring and tracking how much your cats are actually eating. So within that, then you can decide, do I want to feed my cat three times a day? Do I want to just offer them, you know, this amount of food and let them decide if they want to eat it all as opposed to when I think of meal feeding, like that's usually like the food gets taken away at the end of mealtime or um, there's too many animals in the house. So you can't just leave the food out. So, um, so like I said, I encourage a lot of flexibility. Um, there's also some advantages to meal feeding, right? So I like to use it for behavior reasons, especially when cats are active at night. Then I do encourage people to play with their cats in the evening and feed the cat, you know, maybe a slightly larger meal at around their bedtime. And usually that can help get a cat on more of a sleeping schedule that syncs with ours. It's kind of like when you go to the gym, you come home, you eat dinner, then you want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? So we want to exercise our cats, give them the largest meal of the day, and then hopefully they'll sleep through the night and not beg you for food in the morning. So that's, um, yeah, that's, that's one way that we can kind of manage their behavior a little bit by meal feeding. And, you know, so the other thing I will say is that cats, like you mentioned, are very routine oriented. So they do like things to happen around the same time each day. So regardless of whether you're going to give your cat like a kind of a, a bowl of food that they can come and go from or that you're going to feed them four times a day, I do recommend that people do that on a set schedule. And another reason, try, sorry, I could go on and on about this stuff, but um, <laughs> another, another reason that um, I do encourage like measuring your cat's food and, you know, feeding them on a routine is um, a lot of people don't clean their cat's food dishes very right. often. And it's one of the most disgusting surfaces in your kitchen or wherever you feed your cats. So it's really important to um, offer them their food in a clean bowl. Um, they, you know, will get saliva and hair um, in the bowl when they're eating. Um, a lot of people, you know, and the same is true of water bowls too. They should really be cleaned oh, regularly. Yeah. So oh, we have a fountain in our house for that reason, nice. just to keep it circulating and then cleaning it regularly. So, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, what about placement of food bowls? Now, what's the best practice for that? Yeah. Um, so generally, um, we want to keep the food bowl away from the litter box. As I like to say, people don't usually eat in their bathroom and cats don't want to either. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you have multiple cats, then definitely the feeding dishes should be in separate areas, um, if not in separate rooms and at least with several feet between them. So there's less competition and stress. And I emphasize this because cats are... Um, they're not family style eaters like we are. If you invited me over for dinner and I sat in the other room and ate my dinner while you ate at the dinner table, um, that would be very awkward and weird. <laughs> <laughs> but cats don't share food naturally, um, except for when mother cats are kind of supporting their kittens in the learning phase of, you know, developing and weaning and hunting. But, um, you know, they hunt very small prey, as I mentioned earlier. They don't, you know, work together to take down a caribou and then eat a meal together. So it's not natural for them to eat in close proximity of other cats. 
Now, a lot of people will then say like, oh, my cats share the same bowl and that's fine. Um, but you always want to give your cats the choice to eat separately. So give them their food in separate areas. If they choose to kind of swap or share, they at least have the choice not to if they don't want to. So we're really trying to keep the meal time as stress-free as possible for our cats. Um, you know, a lot of people also ask about, you know, should the food be near the water bowl or away from the water bowl? And it's very interesting. There's actually no research on this topic and it's kind of like an old wives tale or, oh. you know, that um, cats do not want to um, have their food next to their water dish. Now it depends on your cat. So maybe you have a very sloppy eater mm -hmm. and you don't want them getting a lot of crumbs and bits of food in the water. So that would be a good reason to have the water away from the food. On the other hand, if you feed your cat primarily dry food, then you may want the water dish nearby because they're going to um, drink more water to accommodate for um, the the lower water content in their food. So um, I, I'm kind of like, you know, try a few different things, see what works for your cats and offer them a few water bowls in different places and see what they prefer. But, you know, everyone kind of cites this like, oh, the food and water needs to be separated. So I asked several other researchers, mm -hmm. uh, including people who had cited this in their, you know, writings. I'm like, where is this coming from? And nobody could find uh -oh. me a study. <laughs> um, and I did talk to a, vet, a nutritionist who works for a pet food company and, you know, they do pet food companies that are the larger ones do do a lot of research on consumption of food and water in pets, but they often don't publish the research because it's like proprietary and, you know, right. secret. And um, so, yeah, that was, that was where I got tipped off to, you know, the possibility that cats who eat a lot of dry food may actually prefer the water to be closer. So um like I said, give your cat a few different choices, kind of track what they do, see if they have a clear preference. Um, if they don't have a clear preference, then maybe one works better for you than the other. Um, and yeah, don't get too hung up. Like I said, I try not to get too hung up in absolute rules. Like this is going to work for every cat. It really is kind of what works for you, what works for your cat. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We always encourage people. Observation is, is key here because, you know, you can, if you just go by hard and fast rules, well, then you're not paying attention to the, the individuality of your cat. Absolutely. So, okay, well, now let's talk about puzzle feeders because it's common practice to recommend puzzle feeders to folks whose cats eat too quickly or too much or just need more enrichment. But you've done a couple of studies looking at the efficacy of food puzzles and the results have not quite been what you'd expect, <laughs> uh, including yeah. the fact that our kitties may just in fact be freeloaders for the most part. What can you tell us about what you've discovered through this research? Oh, ho, ho. What does she say next? What kind of insights into puzzle feeding is she uncovered? Why would somebody like me who loves cats call cats freeloaders? You'll have to listen to next episode when we bring you part two of our interview with Dr. Michael Delgado. April 10th through the 16th is National Dog Bite Prevention Week. So today we want to help you, yes you, understand why dogs bite and how you can avoid said bites in your daily doggy-filled life. First thing, any dog can bite, big or small, friendly or unfriendly, old or young, because dogs primarily bite as a reaction to a stressful situation. They're scared or startled, they feel threatened, they're protecting something valuable like their puppies, toys, or food, or they're not feeling very well. How do you avoid this? Well, if you're a dog owner, proper socialization is key. It helps them feel comfortable in a variety of situations and therefore less likely to get ramped up to the point where they'll bite. Always keep your dog on a leash so there aren't any surprise meetings that can't be controlled. 
Now, if you've got kids, teach them when it's okay and not okay to approach a dog. When is it not okay? If the dog is not with the owner, if the dog is with its owner, but the owner does not give permission to pet the dog, something that we talked about with Kathy Nash-Peterson, who has a shy and fearful dog that will bite, and people often ignore her um, and are like, no, 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 I love dogs. And it's like, well, you're approaching a dog that does not want to be approached. Um, If the dog is on the other side of the fence, don't reach through or over a fence to pet the dog. If a dog is sleeping or eating, if a dog is sick or injured, if a dog is resting with her puppies or seems very protective of her puppies and anxious about your presence, if a dog is playing with a toy, if they're growling or barking, or if they appear to be hiding or seeking time alone. Truth is, a lot of folks, even those who own dogs, don't always understand dog body language. Dogs rarely bite without some kind of warning. So brushing up on what certain signals can mean can go a long way toward avoiding stressful situations for the dog in question. Want to learn about dog body language? You can go online and find lots of helpful info, or you can grab a book on it. Our recommendation for a quick primer is our friend Lily Chen's book, Doggy Language. However you do your learning, dog body language is an incredibly important part of communicating with your pet or understanding what someone else's dog is laying out for you pretty clearly. And that, my friends, is how you avoid dog bites. And now we say goodbye to you, friends. Big thanks again to Dr. Michael Delgado for coming on the show today and sharing her expertise. Be sure to check out her work at whatyourcatwants.com or michaeldelgado.com. As for us, we're a nonprofit keeping pets and people together, and you can help. Just head to prckc.org and you can donate, volunteer, shop our online store, and more. If you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, be sure to rate us and review us to bring even more listeners into the fold on our unending quest for world domination. For the latest news, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at PRR Podcast on both platforms. So until next time, tail wags and purse to you and yours. And as Mark Twain said, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. Take care. Pet Resource Radio is a production of the Pet Resource Center of Kansas City, written, produced, and hosted by Sierra Howe and David Shapiro, recorded, edited, mixed, and mastered by Dave Shapiro, music by Hazel Raw Musical Industries, a.k.a. Dave Shapiro, or info at soundcloud.com slash Hazel Raw Musical Industries.